Thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 144, The Eyes Are Not Good Liars. Last time, as more of Dr. Marcel Petio's past was uncovered, Commissioner Massou decided his next best move was to make for the forwarding address listed at the townhouse's entrance, 18 Rue des Lebas. However, as Massou had his street cops question the neighbors of the townhouse, it was discovered that there had been a different address listed previously, 55 Rue du Pont. Now the commissioner had two addresses to investigate. Fortunately, they were in the same part of France, Auxerre. At best, someone at one of those locations might know of the good doctor's whereabouts. At the least, more clues would be uncovered. Before making their way to Auxerre, Massou and his men stopped at Villeneuve-sur-Yon, where Petiot had been mayor. Detective Batou and his men arrived there earlier that day. The local police told the detective of Petio's doings while in office and that he was no longer respected of the community. The pattern was the same that Massou had read about so far. Petio was suspected of stealing, lying, and that one of his lovers had mysteriously disappeared. In March of 1930, indeed, the month of March seemed destined to always mean something to Marcel Petiot, a 45-year-old farm wife by the name of Henriette Dabou was found dead in her kitchen, her head bashed in, and the house set on fire. The local detectives found that the fire was deliberate and that the cause of death was blows to the head from an object like a hammer. Indeed, the farm's hammer was missing from the unscathed tool shed. After the police questioned all connected to this ghastly situation, they were led to believe that Petiot and Henriette were lovers. The two had been introduced by a local, a man known as Old Man Frascott. The three had dinner a few times together when Frascott got the feeling that he was becoming a third wheel. This was the man who had also introduced Petio to Louisette de Lavoux, his former lover, who was now missing. Try as they might, the local police could not prove any of their suspicions, but there seemed to be someone who knew much about the crime. This person even located the hammer used in the murder. It had been dumped in a stream near the farmhouse. The problem was, this person was freelancing for a local newspaper, but never gave their name to the editor, and his or her articles were sent to the paper by a courier. Not until the end of the war would this correspondent be revealed as Marcel Petiot. As for why he killed, who can say? But it was obvious by now to anyone who really knew the man that he liked getting the better of, or even taunting, anyone of power, or someone who was desperate, even the police. It was a dangerous game, but one, those are the only ones worth playing, if you have the right mindset, and two, Petio just knew he was smarter than everyone else. 
So what was the harm? Because really, they were all just pieces on his game board. Which is why the next part is passing strange. Frascott was soon known to be going around town saying, I don't know about this reporter, but I do know something of the murder myself. In fact, I saw someone at the farmhouse the day of the murder. But more than that, he would not say. Maybe there was celebrity or money to be made from this, whether he was telling the truth or not. Which could lead one to believe that he was indeed making up stories, as he bragged to Marcel as well. For who would taunt a person, when believed, to be a brutal killer? Yet before Mascot's bragging ways could make it to the police, people will tell other people, but who wants to be the one that officially informs? The older man complained to his friend-slash-doctor that rheumatism was getting the better of him. Right away, the sympathetic friend told his friend-slash-patient that Paris had just come out with a new drug, one that was sure to cure all his ails. In fact, they were such good friends, Petia offered to administer the drug for free. Right away, the two men went to Petia's office, and the injection was administered. Three hours later, Frascott was dead. According to the coroner's report, death was by accident from a heart shock or some unknown side effect from a hypodermic needle. Not that it really mattered what the coroner wrote, for the town's medical officer was one Dr. Marcel Petiot. Still, there was now one less possible witness to the murder of the housewife. Getting back to the murders of March 1944, whoever the killer was, they would not have been too pleased to know that Paris's finest were on the case, and those men were on the cutting edge of their fields. As the gravediggers brought the body parts from the townhouse and lime pits to the Institut Medico Legal, or IML, waiting there was Alphonse Bertinon, a man who practically invented anthropometric techniques. In other words, exact measurements of a person's body, dead or alive, that could help identify them. This was important as French law had more lenient punishments for first-time offenders. Hence, most criminals, when caught the first time, would change their name, so if caught a second time, they could still expect a light sentence. But not with Bettiot on the case, as he had over a dozen categories for his measurements, like from the hand to the elbow to the elbow to the shoulder, he could check the records of suspects arrested before, compare them to someone newly arrested, and say, for certain, it was the same man. And as he had been collecting these measurements since the 1880s, he had a staggering five million measurements filed away. The man who ran the IML, Dr. Albert Paul, was an expert on forensic pathology and frenetic entomology. Of his many cases, he had helped catch Henri Landrieu, who had dated and killed over a dozen women, just after the Great War, 
Landru had baffled the police by burning his victims' bodies. So, even though these rich women had disappeared, their bodies were never found. But through his own research, Dr. Paul found that a right foot burned in a kitchen stove would take 50 minutes to disappear. A complete skull, one hour and ten minutes. So, when Dr. Paul was told of the events of the townhouse, the first thing he told Commissioner Masu was that the bodies were being cut up to speed up the burning process. Other specialists at the IML had decades of experience putting back together bones and bodies that were cut up, partially burned, or partially decomposed. Such men were helping Masu on the case, which should have caused the killer great anxiety, unless he thought he was smarter than everyone else. The gravediggers brought to the IML three trash cans full of bones. The men, not unlike children putting together a puzzle, got to work. Returning to March 13, 1944, Commissioner Massou and his detectives left Villeneuve-Sou-Yan, believing they had found everything worth knowing there. They arrived in Usair around 1 p.m. that afternoon. They first went to the local police station to inform the local officials of the warrants of Dr. Petiot and his wife, Georgette. The police offered to send men to the local train station to keep an eye out, in case the wanted couple left from there. The Rue des Lombards address, listed on the front door of Petiot's townhouse in Paris, was owned by the doctor's younger brother, Maurice Petiot. Massou also found out that Maurice, an electrician, owned several other properties in town. Yet the brother lived at a different address, 56 Rue Dupont, with his wife and two children. And there was another child there, the 13-year-old son of Marcel and Georgette, Gerard. He was attending a nearby school. It was this address that was first listed on the townhouse's front door before being changed to the Rue des Lombards address. Before Massou visited the home address, he got some background on Maurice Petiot. He had suffered hard financial times in the past, but now seemed to have more than recovered, as he now owned several properties, more than an electrician should. When the police arrived at the Rue Dupont address, they found that Maurice's shop was on the ground floor, and his apartment was just above it, as merchants had been doing for hundreds of years. Maurice was not at home, but his wife, Marie Angèle, was. She showed them around the shop that held many radios, as the locals were desperate to catch the latest reports from the BBC and Radio Berlin. Massou and his men searched the shop, and then the apartment upstairs. Marie-Angèle was more than happy to give them access. When nothing of interest was found, she took them to the Rue du Lombard address, a few blocks away. This turned out to be a small chateau, 
but was not currently being lived in. Turns out it had been purchased by Marie's father for her children. As the police searched the premises, they found it to be as unkempt as Petio's townhouse. However, a small room on the ground floor held a bed that had recently been slept in. When asked, Marie freely gave up that a business partner of her husband's and Albert Niehausen had spent the night recently. As the list of people needing to be questioned was growing, Masu did not hesitate, but drove straight to Albert's home village, about ten miles to the south. Niehausen was located and questioned. He said that, yes, he was Maurice's partner and knew the family well, but no, he barely knew Marcel or Georgette. And although he did not know the whereabouts of the older Petio couple, he had seen Marcel on March 11th, the day the body parts were found in the townhouse. In fact, he had words with Marcel. As he was to be in Paris on that March 11th, Maurice had asked Albert to stop by Marcel's apartment to pick up some shoes for the latter's son, Gerard. Albert did as asked and briefly spoke to Marcel, got the shoes, and left around 11.15 a.m. He was on the train home that same day at 5.20 p.m. As Albert had arrived at Auxerre at 9.40 p.m., he was about to take the bicycle for the last 10 miles, but as it was raining heavily, he asked and was allowed to sleep in the chateau. It was not something that normally happened. Masu wasn't sure if this was a dead end or if there was something more, but he retained every word Albert told him. The next day, March 14th, the local police of Auxerre greatly helped Masu with his case. Two officers at the train station noticed a woman with an expensive, bright yellow suitcase. Then they looked at her and noticed she was pretty, as men do. Only then did they realize she matched the description of Georgette Petiot. The two officers approached her and asked her name. Yes, she was that Georgette, but responded, I have done nothing wrong, which may be a strange start to a conversation, but not in occupied France. The officers informed her of her status and that she was to be taken back to Paris for questioning. Again, she protested her innocence of whatever they thought she had done. Then she fainted. The officers carefully carried her and her luggage back to the car. They were joined by the 13-year-old Gerard. In the car already was Maurice Petiot. He had returned home later that day and had been apprehended. Finally, Commissioner Massou had Georgette in his interrogation room. The first thing he told her was not to rush. They had plenty of time to talk. This was not meant to settle her, but the opposite. Massou started off with, begin where you would like. Georgette, 39 years of age, but looking much younger, must have heard of the stories in the media by now and what her husband, 
and perhaps herself, were being suspected of. Her opening move was, I must say, that I am unaware of his business. This came out so low, Marsou barely heard her. She knew that her husband had purchased the townhouse at 21 Rue Le Soir, but she had not gone inside. Right away, she told Massou she did not like it. It had cost too much and would mean that her Marcel would be away from home even more. But instead of moving further on this just broached subject, Massou switched topics to unease his suspect. He asked if she knew when Marcel had purchased his bicycle and the trailer that was attached to it. Marceau believed that it had been used in the killings in some way, either by carrying away the victim's belongings or carrying to the townhouse the injections. Georgette's only response was that she knew he used the bike and trailer for when he went to auction houses. Besides, and here she reared up a little bit, my husband is gentle, good to his family, and is loved by his patients. She was feeling the strain, but Masu went on, peeling the onion of its outermost layer. Masu switched topics again. He asked Georgette to tell him of the events of March 11th as she understood them. She replied that Marcel made house calls that morning, like he normally did. He returned to the apartment for lunch. They talked, and then he left between 3 and 3.30. He did not tell her where he was going. He never did, and that was the one thing she confessed that bothered her about her husband. Marcel returned home around 6, met with a patient there, and was done by 7.30. The couple then had dinner. But that was when the police called and told Marcel of the fire. He grabbed his hat and coat and ran out the house. As Georgette spoke of the phone call, she covered her eyes. Massou knew this was normally a subconscious gesture, indicating shame or guilt, and she began to cry softly. Massou did not let this stop the interrogation. It was the step before someone normally broke. When Massou asked her why did she not go to the townhouse when Marcel did not come home that night or the next morning, Georgette replied she was scared of the police, as Occupy Paris was full of Germans. So, she took a train to Usair. She hoped to run into her husband there, but at the very least wanted to be closer to their son. The commissioner knew he had her on the edge, but didn't want to push her over yet, because if that happened too soon, her responses could be dominated by emotion, pride in her husband, the shame of him being a monster that she may or may not have known. No, it would be better if she broke in a way where the truth came out with a rush of tears. No, it was the brother's turn. Maurice was much calmer than Georgette, 
So Masu decided to slowly work his way to any direct questions, to wear down the man's patience. Hence, the brothers' lives as young adults were covered first. Marcel and Maurice had been close when younger, but then had a falling out. Only around 1940, when Maurice regularly came to Paris for supplies, did they get reacquainted. They would have lunch on each of Maurice's trips. With this done, Massou asked Maurice what did he know about 21 Rue Le Soir, the townhouse. Maurice calmly replied that he remembered Georgette telling him of her husband's spending a lot of money on that place, that she was frustrated with the waste of a half a million francs. But that was it. He himself had never been there, or had even never known which street this private mansion was on. But this did not feel right to Massou, so he stayed on the subject of the townhouse and became more direct with his questions. It took a while, but Maurice ended up tripping over his own words, failing to remember the lies he told an hour earlier. When Massou confronted him with this, Maurice finally seemed willing to come clean. Yes, he did know exactly where the place was, and in fact, had been there, but only a few times. The first was in the summer of 1943, to do some work, and then, at the end of that year, to deal with some leaking. But the last time was definitely in January of 1944, just two months before the unattended fire had started this entire episode. Massou backed off of the questioning of the townhouse. He couldn't help but wonder, was Maurice trying to play him? To tell some lies, make a mistake, on purpose, and only then sigh, as if to say, you got me and then give up more, albeit innocent, information. It was either that, or Massou had bent Maurice. But if that was true, he was far from broken. No, this was going to take time, but again, Massou had all the time in the world. And in the back of his mind, the commissioner believed that Maurice knew much more about the townhouse and the goings-on there than he was letting on.